Hello and welcome to the Bulwark Next Level Sunday Show. I'm Tim Miller, here with my BFF, Jonathan V. Last. We've got a great guest today, Abraham Josephine Reisman. Josie wrote a book about Vince McMahon and the parallels between wrestling and politics. It is so good. It was mentioned by a previous guest, Juno Diaz, as the book he was reading. And uh, JVL and I are big wrestling people, so we had to get Josie on. I will tell you... Even if you don't know anything about wrestling, A, this is a great book to read because it's really about culture, and B, it's still a good podcast because we get a lot into trans and LGBTQ politics. Uh, Josie is trans. We also get into Donald Trump and his relationship with wrestling. It's going to be really good. The book, by the way, is called The Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. But before we get to Josie, uh, JVL? You had a little triad this week on Mike Lindell. He's got some WWE vibes about him. He sure does. I mean, he looks like Paul Bearer to start with. Uh, <laughs> he, he looks like a slightly slimmer Paul Bearer. And uh, Mike Lindell, about a year and a half ago, uh, when he was doing his big, do you remember his big confab where he was going to give the, the information to show everybody how the election was hacked? And he presented data that he he claimed proved uncontrovertibly that the Chinese had hacked the election and for Joe Biden. And he said that he would give $5 million to anybody who could prove him wrong. And so one guy, one guy who was a computer forensics expert who was a Trump supporter and Trump voter, looked at this data and said, this is garbage. And he submitted a, a, a proof. He, you know, he sent in a big, like, you know, hey, look, Mike, this is, I'm sorry, this is weak. This, this guy was there because he really wanted it to be true. And so he submitted a proof and said, this is not on the level. None of this stuff shows what you say it shows. And this is the equivalent. Every once in a while, there would be in wrestling, like the gimmick where, and this is more in the old days, the promoter would say, you know, would anybody want to come in and face the Mongolian monster? You know, and, and everyone <laughs> wanted to get a plant from the crowd who would jump like the one, two, three kid. Ah, the one, two, three kid who would jump in and oh, oh yeah, oh, I remember that. Sure, and then you know they'd fly off the top rope and stun the world by, and that's what happened. Except that Mike Lindell stiffed this guy and wouldn't pay, so this dude took him to arbitration. And on Wednesday of this week, twenty-four hours after the Fox and Dominion case settled, the arbitrator found in favor of of this gentleman, and Mike Lindell is outraged and is going to appeal this decision from the biased deep state arbitrator and take them to (laughs) you can't make it up this is why everybody needs to read Josie's book because that's what it's really about it's not just about wrestling it's about politics in America here's the thing about the pillow man which would have been a great wrestling name by the way you want to not take it seriously because it is so unserious but here's the thing we broke this at the bulwark during the period of the coup attempt he went to visit Trump like the president in the of the United White States, House. yeah, attempting uh, uh, to try to encourage him to seize the machines. And Trump was looking into this. Like he wanted to have lawyers meet with him and to hear the pillow man's pitch for seizing voting machines, uh, you know, as if we're like a, a third world banana republic, which I, we were really for a couple of weeks. That's first. Number two, I think the most damning discussion in the whole, you know, all of the emails that we got from the Dominion filings, you know, was Rupert defending having Pillow Man's ads on. That was the context of the not red, not blue, but green. <laughs> and so this is important to understand. Like, Mike, this lunatic that is out there trying to overturn the, the government and that is, like, the leading uh, uh, purveyor of, of false information about the election, 
Fox was taken on the take from him and felt like his money was so valuable that they, that they couldn't get rid of him. I, I thought that was one of the most compelling elements of the whole deal. And, uh, you know, this week Fox you know, loses their $787 million. Mike only loses the five. But that comes out of, you know, corporate coffers and they have a machine to print money. And Mike Lindell, that's going to come out of his pocket. And he is not Fox. He does not have a machine that prints money. I think he winds up getting hurt. Here's my question to you. Is Mike Lindell a mark? Yeah. Or is he a smark? Is he a smart mark? Which is in, in wrestling parlance. Does Mike Lee think it's real? Right? Does Mike Lee look at all of this and say, oh my gosh, that pile driver, Mike I can't Lindell. believe it didn't break his neck. Ha! Ah. Or or is Mike Lee in on the joke? And he knows that it's all kayfabe. Well, M- Mike Lee is a smart. <laughs> Sorry, Mike Lee. <laughs> Mike, Mike Lee Lindell. is a smart. Mike, Mike Lindell yeah. is a smart mark. Mike, uh, Mike, Mike Lindell. Lindell. I mean, he was a crack addict. So, like, that's an important piece of information to consider. You know, so yes. his brain... You know, that has, True story. And, you know, I, I've done some recreational drug use in my day, but uh, boy, um, you know, being an addicted to crack, that, that puts some holes in the old cranium. So I think if I had to guess, I think he's a smart. There's no way somebody could really believe all the shit that he says. Like, if you want to really punish yourself this weekend, spend an hour on Lindell TV. I mean, this stuff <laughs> is like another universe level stupid. I mean, this is, is so. I, I think he's a smark. That's where I'm landing. What about you? I think he's a straight mark. Straight I think mark. he is like the grandmother who would who would stick a wrestler with a hat pin because she's so angry at how mean Brutus the Barber Beefcake is. And she's on the side of the other. I think this guy buys all of it. If he's not, it's the greatest act I've ever seen in the history of the world. It's pretty compelling act. If he really is in on the joke, then boy howdy, I've never seen anybody sell the way he has sold this this gimmick. Up next, author of The Ringmaster, Abraham Josephine Reisman. You are going to enjoy it. We'll be back on Wednesday with me, JVL, and Amanda. We'll be in for Sarah this week. We have a great guest also for next Sunday. Stick around the next level. Go make sure you're checking out the other podcasts, the Daily Bulwark podcast with Charlie Sykes, Mona Charon's Beg to Differ, Sunny Bunch's Culture Podcast. They're all great. Up next, Josie Reisman. But first, our friends at Acid Tongue. Hey there, we're here with my new, hopefully, friend, Abraham Josephine Reisman and JVL for your Sunday Next Level. Josie, you know that, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago now, Juno Diaz was on. That's correct. And we asked him what he was reading, and it was The Ringmaster. Oh, really? He said that? How about that? Yeah, and so I guess my first question is, do you have someone you want to pay it forward to? You know, maybe that we can have. Who are you reading now? I've been thinking a lot about old dead authors lately. Let me think. Who's somebody who's living? Oh, someone whose book came out a few months ago but didn't get nearly the attention it deserved is my friend Emily Tampkin's Bad Jews. Bad Jews, which was Mm. a really interesting panoramic look at the different... I mean... the title was deliberately provocative, but the book is sort of about all the different kinds of Jews in America. It's a beautiful panoramic look at what it is to be Jewish in this multifarious way. I love the title. I think the title may have ended up 
turning people off because they thought it was going to be a book that chastises people. And it doesn't at all. It's just a really interesting and beautiful look and analysis at Jewry in America over time. Should have set up a table at CPAC. Right. Maybe yes. done a little bait and switch yeah. for, uh, for those people <laughs> to get them to buy it. Okay. So it's Abraham Reisman on the book jacket, but you're trans. Yeah. Yeah, we got an extra name here. You're There's jo- an so extra I'm just I'm name, wondering yeah. like, did you submit the book and then you're like, yeah. you know what? I'm I'm becoming my true self 2 days after I've submitted the book and it's too late to change the top. Yeah, what happened there? It was terrible timing. We had gone through a bunch of iterations of the cover and I was being very picky. I wanted it to look nice, and my editor, God bless him, had said I had permission to be picky. But after (laughs) a while, I was starting to get a little nervous. So when we finally got the one that worked, I was so elated with it. And then, like, two weeks later, I realized, you know, I want to live as a woman now. And it was just not great timing, most importantly, because the graphic design had not been done with three names, including a long middle one in mind. And... It was too late to really go back to square one. Like, we were already kind of up against the whatever. And so it was uh, a matter of graphic design winning out over me being fully representative of my true self. That said, on the jacket cover, it says Abraham Josephine Reisman. So, and as my pronouns. But, you know. Not to be too flippant, like, two weeks is really kind of close. Like, do you feel like living in Vince's head, like, had something to do with it? Yeah, well, you think that's wild. We were looking at the covers... Before I was done with the first draft, I was like almost done and we were already looking at them. When I finished the first draft, (laughs) it was like two days after I had come out. Like I didn't plan on coming out that it was one of those sort of surprise things where I just went, you know, I realized this about myself and had a few pops and tweeted about it. Yeah, basically. I realized it and was just sort of like, you know, I it was something I'd been sort of running over in my head for a long time. But when I finally sort of had the moment where I was like, you know what, I want to do this, I just sort of did it and then finished the first draft, which is not that that's not that big of a problem. The bigger problem was like right in that week, I might be getting it was like within a three day span, I like came out finished first draft, and Vince McMahon got hit by the Wall Street Journal with a bunch of new sexual misconduct allegations, which triggered me being like, okay, well, I was planning to do this article about Rita Chatterton, the first female referee in the WWF who claims that Vince raped her in 1986, but I was planning to put out that profile when the book was about to come out. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, I feel like now is the time. People are finally paying attention to this stuff. So I did this article for New York Mag very quickly. And it was a very quick turnaround. And I had already done all the research because she's in the book. But it was really wild because I had like just made this identity change and was not planning on writing anything in the immediate future. The plan was I was going to come out and then like the next big thing would be the book. And that was not going to be until like March or something. The timing was what it was, but I was really gratified by the fact that when that Rita Chatterton article came out, a shocking number of people, including lots of wrestling fans, were just immediately on board with the name and pronoun. I didn't even alter my name at the beginning. I just was like, I don't know what to do with my name, so let's just talk about the gender. 
Anyway, I could talk about this all day, but it was weird timing. Yeah, I would like to do a little trans politics stuff first, if you don't mind. This is sure. a politics show after all. We can mm-hmm. we can do the wrestling candy at the end for the wrestling fans, but some of the people, Sounds some good. of the listeners might not actually, you know, like know who Superfly Jimmy Snuka is or whatever and might not, mm-hmm. you know, might get bored. Uh, that's not me and JVL. No, so let's start with the stuff that's uh, spicy and in the headlines, I suppose. So here's my, like, my big question. And we talked with Dan Savage and Jane Lynch about this and in more of a gay-focused context, but I'm, I'm interested in your view of it from a trans perspective. It's 2016 when North Carolina tries to pass that bathroom bill. Mm-hmm. And this is like, ends up being like a political albatross for Pat McCrory, who is the governor at the time, right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, Democrat ends up winning in the state. A bunch of companies decide they're not going to go there. I think March Madness par- pulled out or, you know, some sports sporting. If I recall correctly, yes, it, w- it was a big to do. Yeah. And basically the conventional wisdom, uh, people like it's hard to remember this because things have changed so much. But like five years ago, it was like, don't touch this issue. Like it's, it's no, toxic. the culture war has been lost. Yeah. Like we already have gay marriage and then the tide really turned. What happened? Like, like how, what is your assessment oh for like why that has changed so quickly? I will venture a guess, which is, I mean, there's a lot of factors, but I think a big factor is you eventually, from about 2016-ish onward, start to get this trickle that becomes a flood of commentators who are ostensibly liberals and make a big deal out of being liberals, or at least about being anti-fascist conservatives, you know, the Andrew Sullivans of the world. You get a lot of these liberal pundits or liberal-leaning pundits sort of getting on board with the Jesse Single train, where it's like, okay... Trans people, in theory, are fine, I guess, but we have to stop mutilating our children's genitalia. The context starts to change once Jesse Single writes that cover story for The Atlantic about trans kids and medical care for trans kids. I think that and the attendant gossiping about trans people that was demonstrably, you can look it up, going on on these little journalism listservs among these sorts of centrist to liberal pundits— you end up having the opinion at the sort of elite liberal level change. You get this thing where people really do, I think, believe that they are okay with trans people in theory. But once they start talking about any specifics about trans rights or trans politics, it's immediately keep your hands off my kids. They don't call them groomers. They just call them, you know, activists or whatever coded word they want to use. So that's not the only factor. Another huge factor, obviously, is just the general onward progress of fascism in this country, where one thing that the fascists have realized is trans stuff, because it has this grip on the sort of liberal imagination, even among people who are progressive on a lot of other things, they've realized it's an inroad. I mean, being anti-trans is the sharp tip of the spear, for getting a lot more reactionary views into your head. There can be reasonable disagreements about, you know, Jesse Signal's writing. I think that, like, I hear you on the influence of, like, liberal pundits making, you know, kind of creating a permission structure for saying, okay, trans is an Mm -hmm. issue, right? But, like, people in Raleigh, North Carolina aren't really reading the New York magazine, you know, the Atlantic magazine cover on this, right? So, like, my question is, so what is happening with those people? Like, and I think it's like... Yeah, that's true. Maybe TikTok, I don't know, like, this is more in their face. Like, maybe the trans bathroom thing in 16 felt more like, I don't know, right? Like, it felt, like, distant. It's kind of mystifying. I'm afraid to venture too much of a guess because I haven't spent 
a ton of time hanging out with, I mean, I went to North Carolina for this book, but I was not out yet. Like transness was not an issue when I was interacting with the old timers at the Bojangles, you know, and I don't know what it would be like now. I genuinely don't. The reason I was defaulting to talking about liberal stuff is because those are the waters that I swim in. So I see where transphobia is rising there. I don't know what's necessarily influencing people who would vote red anyway, but I do know that once you have that permission structure set up, it bleeds out into things like the legal system. You know, you get stuff like Emily Bazelon's New York Times article about trans care ending up in all of these legal cases and pushes for legislation as proof that, you know, children are being abused by all these this care. So I don't know. I love talking about this stuff. You, you can ask me anything. I may think that you're completely off base, but feel free. Let me give you a more nihilistic uh, possibility. <laughs> I'm, I'm eager for this, yes. The only reason this has become an issue is because Republicans lost in 2020, mm. and we're casting about for something new. Yeah, that's probably true. Because this graphs timeline-wise, pretty much with, you know, the, the end of the Trump administration, mm-hmm. and if— if not for that, right, if the, you know, 70,000 votes swing the other way or whatever it was and Trump yeah. wins, then they don't need to find a new culture war, right? They can just stay with the anti-vax COVID stuff because they think that works for them. And otherwise, this is purely opportunity. That's really interesting. I think that, that you're probably right. I think there's a critical mass of people who are grossed out by the very idea of transness or gender traitordom that you can have a base that will get behind You'll be able to film a crowd cheering for that sort of thing. Sure. But the polling that's coming out now is showing that majority of Americans, at least based on whatever question you ask, don't seem to have that much of a vehement issue with trans people. Is the drag show and the trans stuff, are they the same? I just mean as a political matter. The only reason they're the same, I mean, if you ask a trans person and like a gay cis male who does drag, if they're the same, they would say probably not. But in the eyes of an absolutist view about gender, where just deviance from, you know, the norm in any way is is punishable, I think it sort of puts drag queens and trans people somewhat awkwardly into the same boat because we're all being targeted for the same reasons, which is we're gender traitors. You know, my my spouse has this great theory, which is that the anti-gay movement didn't really stop. It's not that it stopped. It's that the anti-gay movement was always an anti-gender traitor movement. It was that gay men were gender traitors. It's just that that the target of who counts as a gender traitor has moved, but it's the exact same rhetoric. I don't even have to delineate it. You know what I'm talking about. I agree with that. And I think that I think that there's a nihilistic political view that accounts for 80% of this. <laughs> that is like, we think that this is an opportunity. Yeah. Uh, like our gay marriage and our don't ask, don't tell hits didn't land anymore. And we feel like we have some some runway here when it comes to the kids being, you know, dressing up mm-hmm. as Tinkerbell or whatever, or getting a drag queen reading a story to them. And like, we've got a right. little runway here, so we're going to run on it. And it's like, this was just dormant anti-LGBTQ sentiment that, that now is back because it's politically convenient. The other 10% that I, I just would like your opinion on, the, like the one thing that I ever hear from that crowd that resonates with me slightly on the gender trader side of things is this notion that if you're a third grader and you are a typical third grader who's going to be a gay boy, you know, you wear your mom's heels, you like Doja Cat, mm-hmm. you play Princess and in, in Mario Kart, right? Like, and that now there's like a pressure that 
oh, that means that you might you be a girl, actually. Mm. And I think that this is where you get, now I have plenty of issues with Sullivan, but like, so my question is, then you get gay men thinking, well, man, the people that were calling me a girl and a gender traitor when I was growing up because I wanted to be princess in Mario Kart were the bigots, you know? And mm. now there are, you know, kind of progressive people that are a little heavy-handed saying, well, maybe that kid is actually a girl. And it's like, well, maybe they're not. Maybe you should just let them figure it out. That, like, r- lands with me. It's just something that I worry about a little bit. But what is a gay man? That's the thing that I counter with. I mean, have you seen Paris is Burning? Yeah, sure. There was a time when gay man included trans women. Right. You know, gay man just meant you were a gender traitor. Right, yeah. Like, I would love for this hypothetical kid to experiment with either one, see what works, see if it's some combination of both. I mean, I think the thing that we have to keep in mind as old people is, hey, speak for yourself, Abraham Josephine Reisman. <laughs> no, no, we are. I have a Snapchat show. Oh, okay. okay, there you go. But I'm saying compared to the teens, like I have a 16-year-old half-sister and who's, who's cis and a 16-year-old nibbling, my, my sister-in-law's kid who's wonderful, who's gender fluid. And their conceptions of gender and sexuality are so completely removed from the discourse that I had. Not just like, oh, it's advanced or whatever. It's just they have a... It's a different matrix. They're plotting in a different X, Y, Z axis. And I don't get it, but that's okay. Like, I don't care. It's not my business. If they want to experiment, great. You know, I'm not a grade school teacher, so I don't know what the protocols are for, like, if somebody's putting on heels, whether you should suggest they might be a girl or not. That's above my pay grade. But I do think it's the equals the opposite scenario is equally likely which is like you find that you are a third grader and you have a crush on a boy and somebody goes oh well you're a gay boy you're going to grow up and you'll be a gay man and maybe it's that you're a straight woman on the inside like i think the labels start freaking people out when in reality these kids not every kid in america of course but the kids who are growing up in the bubbles where this stuff is more acceptable I just don't think our definitions are worth imposing on them. So I don't know. I, I, I want to see them thrive and figure stuff out. And you suggest things and maybe you don't demand them. You know, you can say maybe you're a girl. Maybe you're a gay man. I don't, I don't know that there's that pressure to say like, no, you're not a gay man. You're a girl. Or maybe you're nothing. Yeah, maybe you're not. Maybe you're just a person. Maybe you're just a third grader who likes being, yeah, who likes being princess for a little while. And in fifth grade, you'll like being something else, right? What I try to convey to people is like, it's so easy to just say, this is not my business. Like how kids are being raised. If you don't have kids yourself that you are influencing directly, which I don't, Um, I don't feel like it's my place to tell people how to raise their kids, except to say, like, don't raise them in an abusive environment. And I think the abusive environments are not the ones where people are saying, hey, you might be a girl. They tend to be the ones that say, you're just a boy, and you're straight, and you're cis, and I can't believe I used the word cis, get back in your room. (laughs) You know? It's like, I don't don't see the abuse coming from the left if we're going to use the term the left to describe this sort of thing. I want to transition now into the wrestling, you know, which is our topic. Oh, you want to transition now? Okay, well, congratulations. Yeah, you know. Um, okay, I, yeah, sure. We're all transitioning. It's a nice, life is a transition. Yes, it is. The uh, the gay stuff in the wrestling, though, I'm not all the way into the wrestling yet, but uh, I got to tell you the most disappointing part of the book for me, devastating. 
personally devastated, not disappointed in your writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. You know, the ultimate warrior, like calling people faggots and stuff. Yeah, that was rough. I'm sorry, you were surprised by this? Uh, well, yeah, I guess, and I shouldn't have been. I guess that's what I want to ask about. I don't, I, there was something about, you know, now speaking of imaginary third grade gay boys, here's a non-imaginary one, me. Like, I have a decent group of friends who I like, kind of have this in through wrestling, through something that we just couldn't detect inside of our brains. Like, I don't know if I had a crush on The Ultimate Warrior or if I just liked the grappling or if it wasn't anything yeah. to do with any of that at mm-hmm. all. I don't I don't know. But there is, like, a trend of, of like, gays I know that, like, we're really into wrestling. Oh, Maybe yeah. it was just that it was everywhere when we were growing up. It was. But um, I blocked that out. Like in the 90s, I'm going through the book, and it wasn't just The Ultimate Warrior. It was, you know, uh, Brett the Hitman Hart does a heel turn where mm-hmm. he's doing anti-gay mm-hmm. stuff. And yet, meanwhile, Vince, in very Trumpian fashion, like had a lot of gays in his life. Yeah. Pat Patterson, most notably, his aide de camp was gay openly and a real pioneer for that. What was your sense for like how that developed over time? How he feels about queerness. When we're talking about Vince himself, the sense I get is that He likes individual queer people, but he doesn't feel any qualms about stepping on queer values or sacred cows. He doesn't feel any restraint when it comes to making fun of queer people. I think these days maybe he does because it's bad for business, but for a very long time, I think it was this real dichotomy of there are gay men I like, but also the interests of gay men as a collective population mean nothing to me. You know, gay liberation was not on Vince's agenda, even if a meeting with Pat Patterson was. And I think, broadly speaking, you have a lot of queerness and transness that's embedded, or at least things that resonate with queer and trans people embedded in wrestling. And today I see a huge efflorescence of queer and trans wrestling fandom and participation. I mean, just in the past few years, you've seen the rise of trans wrestlers like Dark Sheik and Nyla Rose and a number of other people, you know, Edith Surreal and... the head of other sports. Yeah, I know, ahead of other sports in some ways in that way. Although they're not in WWE, you know, you're seeing them in the indies and in AEW. And you have a lot of these indie leagues now that are just for queer people or gender, you know, from marginalized genders, whatever. You have these leagues that are dedicated to having performers who are not straight cis men, which is traditionally what you come to expect from wrestling is straight cis men grappling. And... I think a lot of these people, some of them come into wrestling just in their adulthood, but a lot of them watched as kids, were seeing this stuff that was on its surface completely homophobic or transphobic or whatever, but they could pick up on the fact that there is this transgression and transcendence of gender roles that happens in wrestling. I mean, the thing I always point out is we teach young cis boys that they should not show weakness. Maybe they do now. I don't know. But when I was growing up, we certainly did not teach cis boys to show much weakness. Even if the teachers said you could, the bullies made sure you didn't. And yet you watch wrestling, which my bullies were watching. And what's the fundamental ingredient of a wrestling match? It's not strength. It's weakness. The ability to project weakness and pain. Because if you have two people in a ring who actually have no physical strength, they can still have a wrestling match. It can be a silly one, but they can have one because you can just go, oh, I poke you. And the person who gets poked goes, ah, God, oh, what a horrible poke. 
It's, it's, I'm in agony. And the point is you have to show convincingly that you're really hurting and vulnerable. There's also costuming. There's weakness and costuming. Yeah. I mean, Jesse, Jesse Ventura could have been, you know, on, on the main stage at Drag Race. Well, I know. I say in the book, Jesse Ventura was a perfect example of the longstanding detente in wrestling between machismo and camp. You know, you have both of these forces colliding in this glorious spectacle that a lot of queer and trans people, even if they didn't know that that, that about themselves yet, were really enjoying. Throughout modern history, wrestling's modus operandi is to find where like the dead center of popular culture is and to, to put itself there, right? To an extent, sure. That's an interesting way of putting it. Go on. One of my favorite, um, gosh, I'm forgetting his name, the masked man who wrote a great history of wrestling called The Squared Circle. Oh, David Shoemaker. Sure, yeah. Yeah, David Shoemaker. Thanks. He notes that for decades in Southern territories, promoters would never book African-American wrestlers as heels. Right. Because the racism was so out of control that the audience would, would, would like burn the place down. Right. Heels being the bad guy for our amateur listeners. Yeah. Heels being the bad guys. Right. And so it was a, a sign of, funnily enough, racial progress when the temperature had come down enough that black guys could play bad guys down in, mm-hmm. you know, in New South Wrestling in, in, or in North Carolina or Memphis. Sure. So I wondered, you know, you look at. From Adrian Adonis to Gold Dust and Billy and Chuck, that you've had gay characters booked as heels for a mm-hmm. long time. Long time. And I'm not sure if that means that they were, in a weird way, safe as a discriminated class because you wouldn't have to worry about, like, you know, mm. nobody had to worry about Adrian Adonis getting mobbed at, you know, outside the Pontiac Silverdome after WrestleMania 3. Right, right. Or if conversely, that there is a modern moment, like with Nyla Rose getting booked by AEW, which signals a, a shift. I guess what mm. I'm asking, like, do you see any shifts in that or, or no? Well, I think you can't get away now with being, you know, I, I'm going to use a term I hate, but this is what it's term that's used within wrestling, or at least it used to be. You can't just be a faggy heel anymore. You know? Right, that wouldn't get over, would it? Well, no, I don't think that alone yeah. would. But, like, Gorgeous George, no one talks about this, but that was the essence of the Gorgeous George phenomenon. Yeah. It, that was the idea, was he is a preening gender traitor who clearly loves the male form more than he should, even if it's his own male form. And that used to be, Gorgeous George was an astoundingly successful wrestler. And it really was based on this, real gender panic about like, you know, guys aren't supposed to act like that. You know, if a guy acts like that, it tells you something about him, you know? And more importantly, it's an anti-social factor. Like you see, you see gay men in the fifties when gorgeous George is big as this sort of threat to society. It's something that can erode the fundamental foundations of the family, the legal structure, etc. I think you actually could have, in certain places, a, like, trans heel, you'd be excoriated by the media. You would have to be, like, a a really ardent right-wing place that is trying to make a message known. And the trouble with that is no trans people are going to be watching that. The thing you're saying that is amazing is, like, I look back and watch Gold Dust segments, and, like, the only thing that offends me is that 
the person playing Goldust wasn't really queer or trans. Because the character, I actually love. Like, as a character, Goldust is kind of a hero for me. Like, was being played as a heel a lot of the time. But it's much more nuanced. You can really reclaim something like that when, as you say, it's kind of pitching itself to the middle, you know? If you're pitching yourself as an exclusively sort of culture war right-wing thing, then you're not going to get the queer people sort of reclaiming the stuff that you're putting out. I guess what I'm getting at is it's, it's almost like a mirror image of the African-American experience in wrestling where oh, they were like that. Oh, you oh, know, okay. so black, black wrestlers had to be booked as faces until right. the racism diminished enough that they could be heels. So they could be heels. And here, you know, gay and trans characters have to be booked as heels until the transphobia and the, the gay queer phobia. Dis- yeah. Yeah. Till that recedes enough that they can be, they can be faces. Right? I really like that. I, I'm only just th- hearing that now. And it's, it's a really interesting theory I'm struggling on my feet to come up with something brilliant to say about that. Boy, it'd be interesting to have somebody who knows a whole lot about wrestling write a piece for thebulwark.com about that. Oh, I guess I could. All right, we'll talk. We'll talk. You're always welcome. I don't know if we're paying your rates. Yeah, I know. That's the trouble. Once you get to the bestseller list, you have to get picky, I guess. Then do it for New York Magazine. You have my uh, my dispensation. Yeah, I'll do it for somebody. But I'd be stealing it from you. It's your premise. With blessing. It's a gift. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. But it's a really interesting point. There's so much in the book. You've explicitly said that that you wanted people to take away from this book. I can have the parallels between the kayfabe, what's happening in wrestling, kayfabe, which I've mispronounced for years. I appreciated your etymology of it rhymes with "hey babe" in the book. I was like, that really helped. It was it was nice, and you know that that it does. hit me on a number of levels. Um, so okay, so the kayfabe, which is this pretend, this game of pretend that you're playing with wrestling, over a mix work. of fact and fiction. Yeah, the mix yes. of fact and fiction, and like the 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 ways that Trump has used that. So I, I want to explore that, but like really even more on the nose than that. Before we get into the kayfabe, is just the 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 WWE and Republican Party parallels, which mm. I think that you put in the book intentionally are just so so astounding i mean i did but what are you identifying okay all right i put a couple of on bullets here i just want to remember them all okay so it moves from with hogan we have the like eat your vitamins yeah brother kind of wrestling you know sort of the good old you know the socially conservative you know all-american boy to now we have like x-rated in a in a clean way yeah exactly yeah now we have an x-rated kind of uh you know monday night Mm -hmm. raw not now but then you moved to that you have this patriotism of hogan that's like waving the flag shining city on the hill that kind of evolves more into like brown people are bad brown people are bad but also well have a heel get up and you know i loved the nation of domination the fake nation of islam <laughs> a black radical group that they had some of the wrestlers portray because you would have ron simmons farouk just standing in the middle of the ring saying true facts he's like this is a racist institution there's never been a black man as the world <laughs> champion and you're like i mean he's right you know he's booing him but that's a true fact <laughs> Unintentional true facts. Well, no, Um, it is intentional. That's the point. It's all cynicism. It's like Vince is aware of that criticism and is like, sure, if that criticism will juice up the crowd and make them feel embarrassed and then they'll boo him harder, great. You know, that's what matters. It's not, it's much like a lot of people in the contemporary Republican Party, the ideology has become let's poke buttons, you know, and see what happens. Like, let's see what we can do to tick people off. Right. And that's that's what that's what WWF and WWE have been most successful at. 
when they are most successful, it's because they're poking people at places in their lizard brain that they can't quite have full control over. Yeah, and I mean, you even have the direct point, which was maybe too on the nose, um, but I loved it, was Owen Hart, you know, calling everyone at the WWE deplorable before his death, right? Like using that word. Deplorable. I, I, I put that in there. I was like, you can't make this up. I'm not going to draw too much attention to it, but he did have that promo where over and over again, he kept saying everything in the WWF was deplorable. So to me, like the main takeaway from all that, and I don't know if this was unintentional with Trump or just Trump's mm-hmm. lizard brain, to your point, is yeah. like the thing that really parallels it the most is that WWE gives the audience the like kind of a hall pass to be bad mm-hmm. people, right? It's like, it's oh, like you yeah. can be bad. Like you can scream at the nation of Islam guys and like you can mm-hmm. yell at the, right? Like at people that uh, you can yell at the, you know, Russians or whoever the bad guy was of the moment. Yeah. And this is yeah. Trump, right? Like this is Trump's insight, right? Like the, the Republicans before him were kind of the yeah. Hulk Hogan, eat your vitamins. Like there's kayfabe, there's other bad stuff underneath it, but like they're at least trying to bring out people's better angels. And Trump, like his insight is like, actually, people don't want that. No, Trump is this, you know, he's almost like Bret Hart in 97 when Vince was having him be a heel in the United States and a face everywhere else that they went, (laughs) you know, because he would just diss America all the time. That's the closest parallel I can think of to Trump in that he's the ultimate face for a huge portion of this population. And then for everybody else, he's the ultimate heel. And both work. I mean, as long as the crowd is getting riled up, you know, the the people for whom that is beneficial still win. So do you think that was intentional for him? Like he thought about it like that? Which part? What do you mean? Trump, that he's like, I'm going to cultivate this. Like I watch this. I don't think so. I think he learned the skill of working a crowd from wrestling, but I don't think he sat down and said, here's my theory of kayfabe and neo-kayfabe. You know? <laughs> I don't think that that was part of it. I think what he learned was, oh, if I press this button, I get this response. If I press this button, I get this response. When a crowd is riled up, if I toss them obscene truths, they'll go crazy. And if I toss them obscene lies, they'll go crazy. You know, I think it's it's as simple as the input-output of he wants to have the crowd cheering, and he's realized that certain things will get that done. And I think he learned a lot of that from working a wrestling crowd. Because you you look at him give speeches prior to his involvement in wrestling, and like... He gave a lot of speeches, but they tended to be with relatively subdued crowds that knew not to scream and yell. You know, that was not his usual milieu. But you see him doing it at the lead up to WrestleMania in 2007 in his whole storyline with Vince McMahon. And he's picking it up. You know, he doesn't have the mastery of it yet, but you can see him almost in real time sort of going, oh, this is what this feels like. Because he'd been watching wrestling since he was a kid. You know, he'd been watching McMahon family wrestling since he was a kid in the 1950s. I know he really likes pro wrestling. Of the athletic events that America cherishes, pro wrestling is the one that Trump has the deepest affinity for and intuitive knowledge of, of how to do it. I mean, he really does have, at the deepest level, an instinct for the importance of heat. Oh, yeah. He, and this predates, I mean, you could see this going back in his entire public persona, you know, back into the 80s. That this is a guy who understands that the way to draw money is to draw heat. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there has been a f- mainstream figure in American politics who approached their political career 
purely in a heat-seeking manner, which is what yeah. he did, right? Everybody else who's who's done it has always been very careful. Well, you know, I have to prove my viability, and mm-hmm. I have to respond. Mm-hmm. I have respond my legacy and responsibilities, and and Trump just threw all that away because he's like, it doesn't matter. I just need a pop. No, Trump and Vince both understand that your moral valence can shift in the public eye, and that's not necessarily a bad thing for your brand or for your bank account. You know, you can be Trump and go from times of people being like, oh, look at that rapscallion to, oh, that bad man, and everywhere in between. And as long as people are talking about you, you win. That was Trump's philosophy. And Vince has had a similar philosophy. There, You know, we keep talking about the 80s when the wrestling was all about superheroes and drink your milk and eat your vitamins. You know, that was the mode that Vince was comfortable with then. And then when the world sort of turned on him in the 90s and he was under investigation and then trial with the federal government, all of that, he emerges from that and has this different attitude, which is let's be defiant. Let's be the badasses. And eventually the moral valence of WWF in the public consciousness really changes from, oh, this is superheroes to this is, you know, badasses who do what they want but either way, you're talking about it. Yeah. The peak in the 80s and the peak at the turn of the millennium were both massive successes for Vince, despite the fact that the company was viewed in radically different ways between those two peaks. The, the big difference is, though, that in wrestling, you have turns all the time, right? Like every yes. few years, a character has to take a turn. You, when you want to refresh the character, you can turn right. him face, turn him heel. And in politics, that's not how it works. Right in politics, you get one term, more or less and, true. You know, you you become a face once or become a heel once, and that's it. Right then, you're baked with the with the with the crowd. I mean, to an extent, I think you can change. You don't think Barack Obama could turn heel? Well, I think people would actually really love it if he went Stone Cold Steve Austin like tweener, as they say, where he came out. I mean, I'm not saying he's ever going to do this, but Bullworth, I think there's a section yeah. of America that would go nuts. If Obama came out and just became like the Andrew Dice Clay or the Hollywood Hogan of like clowning on on Republicans, <laughs> I think there might be like, oh, Barack Obama too. shouldn't say that. That's really naughty. But people would generally be going either screw that guy because they're Republicans or if they're his base, they'd be like, yeah, he's really sticking it to him. You know, like people want to have a politician that really sticks it to the other side. And Democrats generally don't provide those kinds of politicians. You know, Republicans, to a great fault, that's kind of what they do. But to get back to your point about, yeah, you can only, it's hard to have too many turns of like, outright, I'm a good guy, like I'm fighting for you or I'm fighting against you. But you can have turns in politics of, I'm like fighting for you in a like morally questionable way, or I'm fighting for you in a really clean-hearted way. And you do get politicians going back and forth on that. Sometimes they want to be seen as, like, tough mavericks who are—and then sometimes they want to see be seen as, like, statespeople who are above politics, you know? Those are the turns for me, you know? It's not so much that you switch parties, although that has happened. It's much more about, like, switching whether you're coming across as a goody-two-shoes or— a bare-knuckle fighter. The biggest parallel I saw from the book that I'd like to get your opinion on is there was this phrase about Trump Mm -hmm. that was popularized in 2016 in Republican Mm. circles, which was, his own voters take him seriously, but not literally, 
right? And that, you know, the woke school and the media, phrase, yes. yeah, take them literally, but not seriously. But not seriously. As yes. I'm reading your book, it's like, that is the essence of what you called neo-kayfabe, right? Like, mm. that is the essence of a work shoot, right? It's like this idea that, oh, I don't exactly, you know, you don't, everything that he's saying might not be true per se, but like, the idea is true. But it means something. There's meaning there, and the meaning makes me feel good. Right. Yes. The meaning may be hidden to the average viewer, but I see it. Yeah. What's your question? I feel like I... No, no, no. I guess, again, that's my question. Is That is another example of Trump. There isn't really a good example of another politician doing that before Trump. Like, that type of kayfabe, right? Like, there are other types. There's other types of show, you know, fake fighting, fake arguing that you do in politics. Right. But this notion of, I'm going to cultivate a character essentially, right, that, like, is going to go out and say crazy shit. Right. And that I don't want my audience to even think I necessarily 100% mean at all. Like, that was, to me, like, a breakthrough. And that was a direct wrestling, you know, parallel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing I always say is, like, this is a totally broad generalization, and all my academic historian friends would get mad at me for it. But broadly speaking, the Trump revolution takes us from what was a kayfabe system to a neo-kayfabe system. The kayfabe system in politics in America was we all have one big, flat, solid foundational lie, which is this is a representative democracy where the will of the people is enacted and minorities are protected. That was something that we all sort of said, and maybe we really believed it, maybe we half believed it, but it was a noble lie, and we were all sort of in our own way, trying to pursue it. And now what we have is politics that operates from this assumption that what you're seeing is not democracy, but what you're seeing, in fact, is a corrupt system being exposed for what it is. Like, politicians who win these days are not the politicians who come at you with, I mean, this is, again, a generalization. There are certainly exceptions to this, but the politicians that really juice people up are the ones who say, hey, look behind the curtain. Everything's all messed up. America isn't a good country. Maybe we could be a good country, but I've looked into the guts and I'm showing the guts to you. And this is the essence of neo-kayfabe. You're always saying, I'm giving you a peek behind the veil. And you can always manufacture what's behind the veil. That's the thing. You can show the truth, but people are just as satisfied if you show them something that feels like the truth and makes them feel like they've seen how the sausage is made. But you can totally invent how you are saying the sausage is made. WWE does this all the time. You watch their, like, quote-unquote documentaries that they produce, and there are a lot of them, and it's all saying, like, oh, behind the scenes, here's what was happening. And it's all made up or completely distorted. They never mention the writers. They never mention, like, why the storylines happen. None of that. None of the backstage politics. It's just a different made-up story beneath the existing made-up story. But people go down one level and they think they've found treasure. You know, if you find something buried in the ground, you think it's treasure, not just something that somebody dug up and put down there. <laughs> you know, the human mind doesn't really know how to handle being told secrets and then being told, well, that secret was made up too. So I don't know that I believe this, but I just want to say it and try it out for a second. Mm -hmm. Everything you're talking about, Neo K. Fabe, is the essential machinery and toolbox of the demagogue. Yeah, right. Sure. And and what Absolutely. is a good wrestling promoter? A good promoter is a demagogue who is using those thing, those tools, not for the pursuit of political power, but for business success. 
mm-hmm. right? And it's when you take those tools and you turn them on the you know the machinery of democracy that you wind up with with demagoguery. I don't know. I think the distinction between political power and business power, financial power, whatever, right now is is so. I mean, just look at Harlan Crow. You know, I mean, it's like there's so little distinction between who has financial power and who has political power. Not to sound like a vulgar Marxist, but it's just true. I don't think you can really separate those two. And I think trying to separate them obscures what really happens, which is this is just how image management works right now. And image management, you know, you have the same image management consultants working for politicians as you do for musicians and for, you know, titans of industry. Like these sets of conventional wisdoms about what you're supposed to do in order to manipulate the public, get the public, you know, you can call it manipulation. You can call it getting them to buy your product, whatever you want. I think once you've introduced neo kayfabe tactics, it's sort of like nuclear power. Like once it's out there, you can't go back. You can't convince the population of America now that America is a really great place that isn't having many problems. (laughs) You know, like either side is not going to buy that right now. You know, we've gone too far. Vulgar Marxism is not welcome on the Borg podcast, by the way. So uh, we're going to mute that part out. (laughs) Only the finest, most cultivated Marxism. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Okay. I assess a little bit different, like the kayfabe evolution, which I think looks poorly on myself. I wrote about this in my book about how kind of the Republican Party got here. And I think that we had a period of time where – there was another type of kayfabe different from what you were talking about, about representative democracy, yeah. which was, you know, the sort of uniparty, basically, where we fought and it was fake, right? Like, it was real in the sense that, like, yeah, there were some policy differences that people had. Yeah, yeah, But, yeah. like, Bush people tried to say that the Clintons were, were, you know, lizard eaters. And, you know, like, I would get in fake Twitter fights with the Obama mm. spokesperson when I was working at the RNC. And me and Liz had a fake fight, but me and Liz are BFF, right? Like, we're, we're pals. Like, we're drinking at the end. People could sense that. Right, that's the biggest kayfabe is the media and consultant verse in politics. Right, like so, like people could sense this. I yeah. think, the, yes. like our version of kayfabe, right? And it was like a bad. I was reading the book, and I was like, "What me and Liz were doing is it was like '80s wrestling, you know, where it's like mm. everyone could tell it was kind of fake. Like the wrestlers thought they right. that people thought it was real, but like people could tell it was fake. That's they could interesting. Sniff it out. Yeah, and then Trump comes along, and Trump's version of it is also fake, but it's, like, more believably fake because he does hate those people, and those people do hate him. And, like, the particulars are still fake, but... Right, the particulars are made up, and the character is exaggerated, but it's all rooted in real resentments and longings. And that's the best kind of, most effective kind of kayfabe or neo-kayfabe. And I just think that we played a role in warming people up. Oh, uh, I like, agree. And you see this stuff in the wrestling where you heated people. You were, it's like you were talking about the concept of heat, which is like this yeah. anger towards the character. And and it's like we were warming people up. We were oh, like yeah. creating heat against other politicians that we didn't even believe. Uh, journalists are very guilty of this as well. I am not going to yeah. sit and throw stones too hard. I was not a political journalist, but I certainly was working at places where I saw things that were, you know, the way things were covered and how fake it all was. And I didn't do anything about it. You know, I didn't like try to stop articles that were probably doing active harm to the country. Like I wish I had, I didn't have the clout then. I don't think it would have accomplished much, but I, I get what you're saying. Like a lot of people who shape public opinion 
be they political consultants or journalists or both, (laughs) as some people are, we all warmed people up by having these sort of last gasps of the system where we could pretend that things were not what they were, you know? And I think Twitter is a huge factor in that. What's the one place where journalists and politicians go to most show their ass? You know, it's Twitter. (laughs) And Twitter hopefully will die soon, but the damage has been done. I mean, I think... Twitter was kind of the neo-kayfabe moment for journalism because you had some journalists who were just exposed as complete idiots or or bigots or whatever. And then you had the journalists who were more clever and able to figure out how to project a behind-the-scenes image that was equally manufactured and just as much of a protective armor, you know? And I don't know. Like many things, I don't know where the system is headed when it comes to this this total brain screw of reality. I, I don't know what comes next. I don't know what comes after Neo Kayfabe, really. Boy, this is dark. Uh, all right, last thing before we move on. One of your insights is that people tend to become their characters. And we certainly saw yes. that during the Trump administration, right? You know, with, with uh, Sean Spicer and uh, Reince Priebus and Kellyanne and Mike Lee. And people just... They thought they had to pretend to be a certain way, and then... Why is that? What is the human psychology behind that? You know, I wish I had a psychology degree and could tell you the exact neuroscience of it, but my educated amateur opinion from having talked to lots of wrestlers and wrestling personalities and read about even more, and then just being a human in life, is... Fake it till you make it, unfortunately, goes both ways, you know? You can start out being like, yeah. oh, I want to get to this place where I really am this way that I'm faking. Or you can start out going, I'm just faking it. It's not real. But either way, the more you fake it, the more you make it. If more and more of your life is taken up acting in a certain way, I do think that sort of thing works retroactively. It starts to influence who you are inside. I don't think we're complex enough creatures to really compartmentalize easily in that way. Some people can, but I think a lot of people find it really difficult to act and do certain things and then just put them away. Because I think for a lot of people, it comes down to you say something in a script or a metaphorical script, like if it's the talking point, and then you find out to your surprise, it actually thrilled you to say it, you know? Even if it was something that was, or especially if it was something that was offensive that you previously never would have said, once that talking point gives you the license to say that, you may surprise yourself and find that you really enjoyed it. Much as when a professional wrestling heel gets to go up there and just say abhorrent things to the audience, they may be surprised to find that it was actually quite enjoyable to do so. And sometimes you find yourself then doing that in your private life. So there's a lot of ways this can work. Do you talk to any wrestlers that you're like, oh my God, you really are Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Right. (laughs) You really do cut people's hair all the time. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, but like people really can end up adopting aspect. It's like, you know, nominal determinalism. Like your name will end up telling you a lot, a lot about how your life is going to go. Unfortunately, your name like shouldn't really mean anything, but it does. And it it affects how people see you, how you see yourself, and same with your wrestling character. It's something that you think you can compartmentalize, but the human system is too integrated to really allow that. All right, we're going to get to rapid fire, but one really quick pre-rapid fire I have to ask you. Yeah. There are two things in the book you seem to imply without saying it. Trump 
maybe stole the you're fire tagline from Vince McMahon, who was using it earlier, uh, one, and two, that Trump was uh-huh. a mark for a while who thought wrestling was real, potentially. Right, right. So both of those I couldn't prove because I couldn't get an interview with Trump, basically. I really tried. I yeah. tried very hard to get an interview with Trump. I was in touch with like five different inner circle access people over the course of the reporting of this book. And I got close a couple times, but the big problem was Trump doesn't keep anyone around long enough to like have them be the gateway person too long. I have heard that he was a mark. And that he is a mark, that he doesn't quite know what's real and what isn't on wrestling. But guess what? Guess what? Nobody does. That's the magic of pro wrestling. He called Vince McMahon. I'm sorry, I should have said this. In the book, yes, the story was in 2007, Vince faked his own death in a storyline where they made it look like his limo had blown up. And Trump, according to Vince's son-in-law, Triple H, who is an exec there. According to Triple H, Trump called the next morning and said, is Vince okay? Did anything happen to him? <laughs> it's just too good to check. It's too good, too good I know. But but the point is, like, I think Trump <laughs> is probably like every other wrestling fan. He knows yeah. it's fake, but does not know what that means. He accepts yeah. that wrestling is fake on some level, but I don't think he has any conception of where the fake and real things begin and end, which is true of everybody. It's just that Trump is a little more credulous than some, probably. Yeah. And the year fired stealing? You know, I don't have a conclusive answer, but my guess is Trump stole it. My Let's guess is that. Trump stole it. All right. Yeah, why not? He stole everything else. Okay, to the rapid fire. Everybody gets this one first. Something you changed your mind on as a grown-up, or maybe in your case, something you've changed your mind on since your transition. I don't know. You're, we're all changing. Yeah, well, wrestling is what leaps to mind, because that's yeah. what we've been talking about. I really used to see it as this relic of my past. And now it's something that I'm actively engaged in again. You know, when I started this book, I thought it was going to be sort of like mining history. When did you quit watching wrestling? Like, I'm going to guess around the rock. I stopped watching wrestling after my initial fandom when I was a teenager. I didn't watch wrestling for about 20 yeah. years. So the rock was when you were a teenager? Yeah, the rock like, was, was my, seeing... he was my guy. Yeah. Yeah. What's your, uh, what's your all time favorite work and why is it CM Punk's pipe bomb? <laughs> that actually is my favorite work. I can't believe you guessed really? that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would have picked that even if you hadn't said that at the end part. I think it's genius. The pipe bomb promo for me is probably the ultimate neo kayfabe moment because yes. it really was something that people just bought because they thought they were seeing beneath the surface. All you have to do is scrape away some dirt and you can put anything under there and make people think that they found treasure. The pipe bomb promo, I could talk about all day, but I do think that's one of the best work shoots that's ever existed. People can YouTube it. Most shocking thing that you found researching the book, especially if you didn't get to include it? Yeah, that Vince was a nice kid. That was the biggest shock to me. Vinny Lupton. Vinny Lupton, young Vinny Lupton, by all accounts from every person I talked to who knew him when he was young, not that much of a troublemaker, you know, not really a big fighter, maybe wanted to be a fighter, but didn't get into that many fights. Yeah. I was genuinely surprised to learn that none of the stuff that he said about being a little scrapper seemed to be backed up. One of mine, then, uh, my the thing I liked the best out of the book that you discovered was that another nice kid was Saddam Hussein. He was also a mark and a nice kid. Yes, young Saddam Hussein makes an appearance. Also a mark. Amazing. Nice kid. Very bookish. Give me your wrestling Mount Rushmore. Oh, God. I haven't thought about that. Probably Sammy Stein, the Hebrew champion. Jack Pfeffer, the gay Jewish wrestling promoter who outed wrestling as fake in the 1930s. Paul Heyman, 
the greatest court Jew in the history of wrestling. And I'm trying to think. I guess I might as well toss MJF there because I can't think of another prominent Jewish wrestler. But I just decided to go with all Jews from my Rushmore. All Jews? I was like, I can't, I don't know a single one of those. Okay, great. This is going to be a, t- this is your final one then. It's going to be a higher degree of difficulty, uh, which is your queer American Mount Rushmore. Oh, and if you God. can do that with all Jews, then you've really hit oh, for the Oh, yeah. I, pr- I could. I could. <laughs> but I'm, uh, let's see, queer American. I don't know. Tony Kushner. Um, I love Tony Kushner. Justin Vivian Bond. Um, uh, Pepper LaBeja. And let's say Abraham Lincoln, totally gay. Your ability to pull deep cuts. I love that Abe has made Abraham Lincoln made it on both. Um, a great drag queen. Yes. And not 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 my favorite, which I just keep begging somebody to do. Ron DeSantis. Oh, that's it's good. Right out there for you, Ron DeSantis. I've pitched multiple drag queens on this. My favorite drag name that I've ever heard. I only heard a couple weeks ago. I was at a drag king show in uh, Los Angeles called Them okay. Fatale. And there was a performer who had, this was a person who was performing as a drag king named Christian Rock. <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> that is good. Isn't that Christian good? Rock. Christian Rock. Um, we're going to leave it there. <laughs> they performed Take Me to Church. It was great. Uh, Abraham, Josephine Reisman, this has been so lovely. I've tried to save the audience, but you and JVL could do a separate podcast with all names of people and things that no one else has ever heard of. You've never I tried heard to of. Pr- save the audience from that. And uh, uh, maybe we could, maybe that could be a bonus <laughs> edition. Thank you. You and, did a great uh, everyone job. Everyone should go out and check out The Ringmaster. If you love wrestling, if you don't love wrestling, uh, very insightful look at our culture and it was a great walk down memory lane for me so thanks very much ringmastertheBook.com is where you can go to find the book we'll see you on Wednesday with JVL Sarah thanks again for being here peace 